0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 254, Guam Falls, Wake Island, the Alamo of the Pacific, is next. Last time, the northern defenses of the Philippines, in the form of MacArthur's airfields, had been ravaged by the Japanese air attacks from Formosa. The northeast coast of the Malay Peninsula, at Kota Baru, saw the offloading of Japanese troops while the surrounding defensive areas were kept pinned down with air attacks and naval bombardments. Some of the landings were opposed, some not, like at Singora Beach in southern Thailand. Meanwhile, other landings in Thailand were joined by a land invasion force from Indochina that split into two, which would take advantage of Thailand's transportation facilities, as it was now a part of the Japanese effort. One force would head northwest, to Burma, the other, south, to help mop up Commonwealth forces in southern Thailand, then northern Malaya, and then, if all went well, the crown jewel, Singapore. Meanwhile, 1,600 miles or 2,574 kilometers due east of the center of the Philippines, the U.S. possession of Guam was also to be a part of Operation No. 1, as it was the southernmost and largest island of the Marianas. Possession of it would help the Japanese Empire project power to the south and further east, while guarding the eastern door to the soon-to-be occupied Philippines. After World War I, due to the 1922 Washington Naval Conference, the United States nor Japan would fortify the island's they controlled in the Western Pacific. As for Guam, that promise was held throughout the 1920s and 30s, and by the time that war with Japan seemed inevitable, Washington did not think it possible or practical to defend Guam. Hence, it was put into a Category F defense rating. No construction would be undertaken, and if attacked, the soldiers on the island would destroy anything of military value and withdraw. After all, the Japanese controlled other islands to the north, south, and east of Guam. Hence, the decision was practically made for them. As for the quick destroy and getaway, as most of the island's population of 23,000 lived close to the capital Angana, Ghana on the west coast, this was deemed not difficult. But because of its location, relative size, the deep water Opera Harbor, and open beaches on the west coast, the Empire determined that Guam would be occupied when war came. Reconnaissance flights were started in earnest of March of 1941. The force that would attack and occupy Guam was the South Seas Detachment, comprised of the 144th Infantry Regiment, the 370-man-strong 5th Company of the 2nd Mazuru Special Naval Landing Force and a smattering of other units from the 55th Division. All told, some 4,886 men would come ashore, being ferried by nine transports, all escorted by a mine layer and four destroyers. Further, the 18th Naval Air Corps would provide reconnaissance flights as the attacking force came closer to shore. As the Americans did not have an airfield on Guam, there was no threat to, of an American counter-air attack. The Japanese would take advantage of this by having bombers come over from Saipan, 137 miles away to the northeast, as a preliminary bombardment. However, guarding the island was the Guam Insular Force Guard of 246 locals, though barely trained, 271 U.S. Navy and Marine units, and Ford nurses all under the command of Captain George McMillan. These soldiers had the aged M-1903 Springfield rifles, 13 Lewis guns, and 15 Browning automatic rifles. But that was it. No mortars and no artillery. Any real firepower, relatively speaking, came from the USS Penguin, a 1918 minesweeper, which had two 3-inch 76-millimeter guns. But officially, Guam's main naval vessel was the U.S. Navy cargo ship USS Gold Star with its two 12.7mm machine guns, yet she was currently in the Philippines and would be given orders to stay there after the fighting started. At 4.45 a.m. December 8th, local time, Captain McMillan was awakened and told of the Pearl Harbor attack and like MacArthur and his officers, was informed to expect anything. That anything came at 8.27 a.m. It was 12.57 p.m. in Hawaii, in the form of enemy bombers from Saipan, 137 miles or 220 kilometers to the north by northeast. These experienced bomber crews scored hits on the U.S. Marines' barracks, the local radio station, the Pan American Hotel, and the Navy Yard, such as it was. But having been forewarned, the Penguin eased out of the harbor to better use its two 3-inch 50-caliber guns. As taking the island was the Empire's priority, its facilities were hit first, then the Penguin became the focus of the bombers. The mine layer's anti-air shells had a range of 30,400 feet, or 9,300 meters. But luckily for the Americans, the Japanese dropped down at least that low to go after the vessel. And whether it was luck or skill, one of the bombers was downed. The crew cheered this, and also that the multiple bombs raining down on them missed each time. Still, with indirect hits and strafing, one person on board the Penguin was killed, and 60 of its 78 complement were injured, to some degree. It must have been a harrowing ordeal. As the ship took more damage, it was decided that to stay aboard was suicide for all. Further, there was a chance that the enemy might salvage her. So, into the life raft the crews climbed and then the Penguin was scuttled. The bombing raids over Guam lasted until the afternoon. The Guamanians and U.S. soldiers did their best, but only armed with rifles and handguns, the enemy was free to rain down destruction without risk. By 5 p.m., the Japanese air crews disappeared. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com At 8.30 a.m. the next day, the enemy air raids began anew, though the overall number of bombers was smaller than the day before. The Japanese had figured out that they had vastly overestimated the American defenses on Guam, as in, their enemy had not ignored the Naval Coverage Treaty. With the occupied areas bombed for a second time, on the morning of the third day, December 10th, some 400 troops from the 5th Defense Force of Saipan were landed at Duncas Beach, just north of the capital, Agana. But... As he had the men on hand, Major General Tomitara Hori, commander of the South Seas Detachment Force, decided on three other landings as well, further north of the capital, which was in the middle of the west coast, along the southwest corner of the island at Maritzo and along the lower east coast at Talafofo Bay. Besides, in a worst-case scenario, this would ensure the island fell quickly. But Major General Tommy Toro need not have worried. Captain McMillan knew that his was an impossible defense, and that Washington had decided long ago that Guam was to be forfeited, for now. Still, as the 400-man invasion force pushed their way to the capital and cleared out the insular force guard, when they reached the Capitol's plaza, waiting there, were several Marines and locals determined to give a good account of themselves. Meanwhile, some of the attackers separated from this stalemate and moved on, heading south along the coast, making for the Pitti Naval Yard. The resistance in the capital, such as it was, started at 4.45 a.m. and lasted for an hour. Then Governor McMillan and Marine Lieutenant Colonel William McNulty surrendered at 6 a.m., Word of the capitulation was sent by radio and runners throughout the island. All told, the Marines suffered 13 dead and 37 wounded, the Navy 8 dead, and the local defense force 4 dead and 22 wounded. 13 civilians were also killed before the ceasefire. But then comes the story of U.S. Navy radio man George Ray Tweed. When the Japanese came to Guam, Radio Man First Class Tweed was a 16-year veteran and had been on Guam since August of 1939, his family in tow. The families of the Marines and Naval personnel had been evacuated back in October. As it appeared the fighting was all but over and they were all about to become POWs, Tweed and five other men, Al Tyson, Yeoman First Class Yablonsky. Chief Orographer Jones, Chief Machinist Mate Crump, and Machinist Mate First Class Johnston of the USS Penguin quietly slipped into the woods. Anything had to be better than being at the mercy of the Japanese. Stories from occupied China had made their way around the Pacific. It didn't take long for the new masters of Guam to realize that six men were missing. When found, it was determined their fate was death, as they had dared to resist, whereas those captured when the fighting ended were to be shipped off to the home island. Extensively, they were safe. A reward of 100 yen was put out for the Americans, but for Tweed, that was raised to 1,000, as he was experienced with the radio and may try to send a message to the outside world. Indeed, Tweed would take away a Silverstone radio, and by March of 42, he would pick up broadcasts from San Francisco. But eventually, that battery wore out. Then, getting his hands on a Zenith Electronics radio, he was picking up the voice of freedom and spreading what he learned to the locals to give them hope. The occupiers never stopped hunting for these six escapees. Search parties were always on the move, and in time, some of the Americans were found. Crump, Jones, and Yablonski were captured and beheaded on September 12, 1942. Tyson and Johnston were almost torn apart by 50 Japanese rifles a few weeks later on October 22. Moreover, locals were detained and tortured, but none ever gave up Tweed. At first, he hid in the center of the island, to give himself maximum maneuverability, should the enemy locate him. And the locals continued to help him, but for self-serving reasons. As they told the American, the people of Guam feel that as long as you hold out, the Americans will come back. War quickly makes everyone a realist. After that, when the last of his comrades had been captured... Tweed moved to the northwest corner of the island and was looked after by a local ranch owner. To stop himself from going insane from inactivity, Tweed made shoes for the rancher's family. All told, the Navy man evaded capture for two years and seven months until the Second Battle of Guam. Then the Americans, as had the Japanese before, came in overwhelming numbers. Of the almost 19,000 Japanese defenders, then, 18,000 of them would die, rather than surrender. As for that battle, Tweed did his part. Twelve days before the Americans attacked, the radio man used a mirror and semaphore, in this case, two handcrafted flags, to inform the two destroyers getting ready for the attack of Japanese defenses. Almost halfway, in an almost straight line, from Hawaii to Guam, lay Wake Island. Really, just three islets and a reef surrounding a central lagoon. Being almost 2,000 miles west of Oahu and roughly 600 miles north of the Japanese-held Marshall Islands, it was hoped, rather than believed, that a strong American presence here would help deter an expansive Japan. And as Wake was in the path of the route to the Philippines, again strengthening the island, was seen as assisting MacArthur. So, a naval aviation facility and defensive works were begun there in earnest in July of 1940. In time, there would be just over 1,100 civilian workers involved. In picturing Wake, it's best to think of the letter U, turned so the opening end points to the northwest, and almost touching the northern part is Peel Island, and on the southern tip, Wilkes Island. Before war broke out, there would be a Pan American Airways Hotel on Peel as that company used clipper flying boats to land in the lagoon, ferrying people back and forth from Honolulu. Embodying the tip of the American Spear on Wake, In August of 1941, 449 Marines arrived, under the command of Major James Devereaux. However, USN Commander Winfield Cunningham was an overall command, with 68 Navy personnel and five soldiers of the Army. Besides these soldiers, Major Paul Putnam would eventually control the Marine Fighter Squadron 211 and its 12 Grumman F-4F-3 Wildcats. Some of these would be dropped off by the USS Enterprise just days before the attack. As 1941 rolled along and the tension built between the U.S. and Japan, some of the workers began to quit and make for Honolulu, believing it was only a matter of time before the Japanese attacked. Still, the remaining workers completed the first runway, 5,000 feet long and 200 feet wide by the 6th of September. As the Marine pilots and their fighters had arrived in secret, if the Japanese were to attack, despite the buildup of fortifications now manned by the Marines, it was hoped that this would serve as a surprise, to the point of being able to maintain control of the air in any upcoming battle, thus giving the outnumbered Americans a real chance of holding the islands. As the sun began to rise on December 8th, Wake, on the opposite side of the international line of Hawaii, the first of 36 G-3M Rico type 96 twin-engine bombers, led by Lieutenant Commander Matsuda Hideo, left Roi Island of the Marshall Islands, 720 miles to the south. Meanwhile, at Wake, Major Putnam led four Wildcat fighters, on an early morning patrol. The clouds were thick, but it was not wise to have all 12 fighters on the ground at the same time. Putnam and his air group landed at 9 a.m. after seeing nothing. The rest of the Marines and workers got on with improving the island's facilities and defenses. But just before 7 a.m., a garbled message came from Hawaii. S.O.S. S.O.S., Chaps attacking Oahu, this is the real thing, no mistake, repeat, this is no drill. But due to the slapdash communications at the time, Major Devereaux could not be reached directly. Instead, the message was written down and given to a motorcycle courier. But then, the island's ineffectual communications really proved to be a severe handicap. Devereux, now on alert, could not reach Commander Cunningham, who was further to the north on the island, nor the four Wildcats patrolling with Putnam. So he ordered that General Quarters be sounded, but the bugler was either so nervous or inexperienced that it took him several attempts to send the correct call. The Marines eventually dropped their tools and took up their weapons. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've got your Father's Day gift taken care of. Have you heard the expression, less is more? That's so true in our overstimulated world. Or as the folks who make the Ridge Wallet say, cluttered life, cluttered mind. Well, the first step to getting decluttered is taking a look at your wallet. That leather bifold thing bulging out of your pocket. It's more like a suitcase. Old receipts, spent gift cards. No, you need You want the Ridge Wallet, a minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever buy. The Ridge helps you carry less, but always what you need. It looks nothing like a traditional wallet. Two metal planes of titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum, so there's an option for everyone. Bound together by a durable elastic band. It's slim, FRID blocking, and lifetime guaranteed. And comes in a dozen different styles and colors. I chose the titanium gunmetal and the carbon fiber wallets, so I can switch it up whenever I want. Now I carry what I need in my front pocket. And the rich wallet is so slim, it seems to disappear. But all my valuables are right there. And for the ladies, again, you can have all your necessities in one small, sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched and decluttered their lives. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to RidgeWallet.com slash WW2. That's RidgeWallet.com slash WW2. And make sure to use code WW2. The Marines and Naval personnel had, to defend WAKE a respectful amount of firepower, besides their sidearms and machine guns. The defenders had six coastal artillery guns, twelve three-inch AA guns, and, of course, the fighters. When Putnam landed, he was told of Pearl, so ordered another four Wildcats to take off, this time led by Captain Henry Hammering Hank Elrod. The planes flew south of Wake first, then turned to the north. But because of the clouds, their visibility was only 12,000 feet. But just as the Wildcats turned north, Hideo and his 36 bombers were coming up from the south. Hideo noticed a rain cloud just beginning to glide over the southern part of the main island, so broke his planes into three V-shaped echelons of 12 planes each and dropped them down to 2,000 feet. As the first V formation practically flew out of the cloud, they got the drop on the Americans, who had no radar. The bombers' 20 millimeter cannons opened up. The bombs were dropped on the completed airstrip. Within minutes, seven of the grounded Wildcats were destroyed. The eighth was severely damaged. The only remaining fighters left were those in the air, to the north of the island. The perfectly orchestrated Japanese air attack was over in minutes, from 11.58 a.m. to 12.10 p.m. Left behind were three American pilots and 23 ground crew dead, with three more pilots and eight ground crew wounded, including Major Putnam. Just like that, 60% of Squadron 211 was out of action. Further, 10 Pan Am employees and 25 civilian workers were killed. The island's camps and facilities were hit hard. As this was war, the destruction of the facilities has to be put on an equal footing as the lives lost. It is those items that allow the humans to fight. So, during the raid, a bomb hit the 25,000-gallon aviation fuel storage tank near the airstrip. This caused dozens of 55-gallon drums to ignite. Some of the pilots that died did so, running towards their fighters, trying to get them off the ground. The second and third formations of bombers were able to strafe those men, running for their planes. As neither the 3-inch guns nor the 50 caliber machine guns managed to bring down a single bomber, as the Japanese left, they wore wide grins, easy to see from the ground, and wiggled their wings to signify Banzai. Only as the Japanese bombers disappeared through the black smoke did the four Wildcats return. They went into pursuit mode, but were unable to locate the attackers. Hammering Hank Elrod and the other three pilots landed their planes, which was quite a feat considering the fire, smoke, and damaged runway. But when Elrod landed, his propeller met with debris, damaging his plane enough so to make it unusable. The Marines were now down to three Wildcats. Major Devereaux, in charge of his 449 Marines, could not help but complain, as only a Marine can, about the lack of radar, which had been promised. He knew that, with the proper warning, as for the exact time the bombers would approach, he could have had all 12 fighters in the air. And, as the G3M bombers were relatively slow, the battle might have gone very differently. Yet, despite the losses of men and planes, the men of Wake still wanted to fight, and they had, hopefully, a surprise for when the enemy bombers returned. Scattered throughout the island, among the thick trees, were barrels of backup aviation fuel. No, the real problem was, through ill luck or fate, that all of the aviation mechanics were dead. What's more, the repair and maintenance equipment for the fighters had also been destroyed. Still, with a can-do attitude, 2nd Lieutenant John Kinney and Technical Sergeant William Hamilton stepped forward and promised to do all they could to keep the three Wildcats operational. To this, Major Putnam, himself wounded but still in command of the fighters, promised the two men that if they could keep the three remaining planes running, he would get them a medal as big as a pie. The Wildcats were refueled and sent up, just in case the Japanese returned that afternoon. During the attack, a Pan Am Boeing Clipper sat in the lagoon. Of course, now she had 23 holes in her, but was still airworthy. It was decided that some of her fuel would be dumped to lighten the weight. Also, the mail on board was taken off. And replacing all of that weight were 70 airline personnel and the wounded. Captain Hamilton lifted off and made his way to the northeast, to Midway, where it was supposed to be safe. However, he had not gone far before he radioed back to the still-smoking island and reported that just over the horizon was a Japanese cruiser and several destroyers. Their bows were pointed at Wake Island. Postscript For more information about George R. Tweed and his incredible story, check out his 1945 book, Robinson Crusoe, USN, or the 1962 movie, No Man is an Island. As for Major James Devereux, he wrote of his own account of the battle, the book is called The Story of Wake Island. post post Sorry for the sounds of the birds in the background. I did throw rocks at the birds, though none of them were hurt. I think they were laughing, but I hope that doesn't distract you too much. Take care, everyone.